0: got your Bibles? go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 1. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you for being God and just for being real and being here with us, God. Open up the eyes of our understanding. Truly let us see, let us learn, Father God, and be impacted, God, by something In your word, in your truth, God, help us to learn of you, to focus on you, to love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing talking about man, what we are as human beings. And we're transitioning from our position as being made in the image of God to trying to understand how we get to this place that we are now because we talked about all the beauty and the grandeur that man had in his original created state, the destiny that God has given us intrinsic to who we are, but as we always say, when we look around, when we see humanity, when we look within ourselves, we don't see that beauty, we don't see that grandeur, we don't see a people that reflects the nature and the character of God. So how is it that we get from something that can be compared to God, something that was created to be like God, To something that looks more like devils. And to be honest with you. That's humanity. That's who we are. We're some evil people. Even the best of us are quite evil. So how do we go down that slippery slope. And end up at this place. And last week we began to look at the story of the fall of man. Here in Genesis chapter 3. And we talked about the entering in. or The beginning of this perversion. Of the nature of God. Began with deception. And how the the seed of all sin starts with deception, that there are lies, that there are tactics and there are things that we believe that is absolutely not true. But we believe them and we accept them. And that's how sin enter into the world. And we're going to continue to look at this story a little bit. And the objective is to take what happened to Adam and Eve. And to begin to see how it continuously work in our lives. And then we're going to transition from there to try to understand completely what it is that sin has done to us and what sin truly is. But let's continue on this journey, looking at the story out. As a matter of fact, before we get there, a question just popped in my mind. I think it's pivotal. Why do we start with Adam and Eve? Why do we take this story to be true? Why do we take it to be literal? Why isn't it just we just accept it as a figurative piece of language like Aesop Fable, something that teaches us a good moral, something that help us to better understand and feel good about ourselves as Christians. Does it matter if it's true or not? Is that something that we should harp on? Is it something we should make a big deal out of it? Whether or not Adam and Eve literally were the first people born. I mean, first people created, whether or not all people descend from them and whether or not they evolved from some apes, monkeys, whatever type of species does not matter and as I think about this it matters greatly and I'm going to try to keep from going into this too far because this ain't what I've been talking about but it just popped in my head why does it matter why does it matter whether or not we evolved or not even if we could give credit to God for creating evolution some people do that they call it theistic evolution that God began a process that culminated in us being here. Go to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to try to make this a short bunny trail. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It said, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, For that all have sinned. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. This is Paul making his case and trying to explain the gospel. In the book of Romans. And this is somewhat the transition point of his argumentation. When he concludes that all people are under sin. So everybody needs to be justified. And justification only comes by faith. And his understanding the way he makes the application to all humanity is that. Sin entered into the world and death by sin through one man. Now, the problem that we have if we take evolution to be true, if we believe that we all, by a slow, gradual process, from the goo, add in a little time, and you get beautiful human beings, what that assumes is that death existed before Adam's sin. And if death existed before Adam's sin, then the gospel makes no sense. Because evolution Depends upon the fact that process by process, things die off because they can't survive and something else pop up and it gets stronger. And that die off because it can't survive and something else pop up because it gets stronger. So it takes thousands of millions of years of death to get to a certain point. And if us as Christians believe that to be true, we undercut the gospel because we say Jesus died because of our sin. And his victory over the grave was the alleviation of the punishment of death. But if death existed before Adam sinned, the gospel make no sense. There is no need for alleviation because death is just a part of God's creation. But that's not how the Bible defines death. Death is a punishment. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. So there's a contrast. So if we get here through evolution and it takes this long process of time, death in the gospel makes no sense. You understanding what I'm saying? So this is one reason why we have to take Genesis as literal. Because if we throw this piece of the Bible out, we have to throw all the rest of it out. It makes no sense. Because the whole story of redemption is piggyback on the fact that God made a man, gave man responsibility, and that man transgressed through the law of God and brought death upon all creation. Y'all understanding what I'm saying? So evolution cannot be true. If the gospel is true. Because evolution depends upon death. And this just gave me another side point. I I'm I'm promise you I'm going to try not to stay on too long. I just got a thought. And I'm thinking about this. Because you know they told you about the process of elimination. All that stuff and everything. Go and go and go and keep going and keep going. And God died until we get man. Voila. We the being. Supreme being. And one day we going to be Spider-Man. If people keep dying. <laughs> evolution just keep going on. But I asked the question. If this is true, and we descended from some ape monkey-looking thing, why do we got the first one and the last one and nothing in between? The reason I ask that question is because it's supposed to progressively get better, and it's the survival of the fittest. So how can the beginning of the process survive greater than the middle of the process because it's supposed to get more fit? You understand what I'm saying? So we're looking for a missing link, but we got monkeys and apes all around here, and they supposed to be the beginning just something upon it. We put That ain't what we're talking about today though. <laughs> I'm sorry. But another reason we take Genesis to be literal is because it explains all of human existence. It explains all of human existence because if there was another couple like you said if some of y'all grow up and y'all get deep and deal with some deep folks they're going to tell you about this other couple that God created. That the Bible don't talk about it only hints that. If some of y'all be watching them little stupid videos on YouTube, you probably heard about something called Lilith. And it tell you about Lilith, she was the the wife before Eve and all that other stuff. Yeah, it it get crazy out there. But the reason we don't take that to be true, and the reason we know it is not true, it's the same thing. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 said by one man sin entered into the world, and death passed upon all men. Now, if there was another creation outside of Adam, That means there's a possibility for two nations or two generations to grow up, one with sin and one without sin. You understanding what I'm saying? Because we get our sinful heritage as a lineage passed down through creation. We're born into it. We're corrupt by nature. And that comes from Genesis chapter three. But if there was a whole nother group of people that existed out there who did not sin, who did not transgress, that would give the possibility for A righteous generation and a wicked generation. But the Bible teaches us that the first man, Adam, was the one man and through him all sin passed upon all his descendants. So if Adam and Eve was not the first couple, sin and salvation once again does not make sense. History does not make sense. Because we see the continuation of this one same thing that shows itself in all of mankind no matter where we search and dig and you go through archaeology. But Most of y'all are probably not interested in that but it can be fun sometimes. And you watch the folks and they find humanity and they find old nations and they find stuff that we forgot existed. The one thing that they find in all these places death, disease, chaos everywhere we dig everywhere there is man there is death there's disease there is chaos but if there was this other people who existed apart from adam and eve who does not get their descendancy from adam and eve we shouldn't see that we should sign spots and sprinkles of people who look just like what adam and eve is supposed to look like but everywhere we see man we see death and we see chaos so we go back to this Beginning, and we literally take Genesis to be a literal story, not just a figurative Aesop fable to try to teach us some lessons. If you got more questions on that, ask me about that later. Let me get back to my same point. Genesis chapter (laughs) 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're gonna read a little bit. Said, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, have God said, shall you not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die, for God don't know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? Pause right there. Now, last time we picked up on the the, the deception of the serpent when he questioned the woman. And we pointed out that the, the two aspects of the deception that he gave. One, he got her to question or to doubt the word of God by asking, hath God surely said? And then that led into him questioning or getting her to doubt the character of God. Does God have your best intention in mind? And we played with that a little bit. But now watch what happened. As she began to listen to the serpent. And and, and wrestle with the doubts. Of the deception that he gave her. Watch. In verse 6 it says. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. A tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof. And did eat. And gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. Now up until this point. Every action. Which is not a lot. That we see takes place in this creative act. It began with a word from God and a response from his creation. All throughout chapter 1, God said, and it happened. God said, and it happened. Even in chapter 2, once he placed man in the garden, all the activity of man came as a result of the giving and the descriptions of God. So God brought the animals unto Adam told him to name them. God did it. God caused a deep sleep to come over Adam, pulled out his wife, presented it unto her, then Adam write the first poem in the Bible. It's deep. First poem in the Bible is a love poem. That's very poetic, that little description that when Adam's talking about this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, thou shalt be called woman. That's a poem. <laughs> it really? Is. That deep Don't Get probably get tripped. You know what I'm saying? All, all women I always want too much. <laughs> but all of the activity that takes place up until this point is as a response to God's word. Is what God say, then man do. What God des- describes, then man acts. But now we have been in this first point after her conversation with the serpent and she's down the character of God, down the word of God. The shift of Eve begins to turn. And now she's at a position where she says she looked unto the tree and saw that it was good. So her activity at this moment is purely based off or turned away from God. You, you, you get what I'm saying? Up until this point, all activity that takes place comes based off what God said. But now be- Eve begins to evaluate things purely on her own insight, apart from God. God is the picture here in Genesis chapter 3. and He only comes in after the decision is made. There is no mention of him other than the fact of giving him credit that he made it. Throughout this conversation and throughout her activity, God is not in the picture. And this is a result of the deception. And what I want to drive home, my first point is a response to being deceived is we elevate ourselves and our own decisions apart from God. The deep philosophers, they call it autonomy. And basically what it means, you seek to rule in yourself or self-rule. And if we be honest with ourselves and we evaluate our lives, the vast majority of the decisions that we make, we make them because we deem them to be good, right, or indifferent. We evaluate things on ourselves. We think that we are the masters of our own fate. We think that we control our destiny. We make our own plans. We make our own ideas and we present those to God sometimes if we get real religious. But in reality, it all falls back on ourselves. There's a turning of the gaze that takes place once you allow yourself and then you allow deception in the, in the words of the enemy to seep in. Give you an example of how this play out in, in regular life. Just, let's just say, we just make up this theoretical person. Alright, theoretical person is a young single lady. They easy to pick up. Young single lady. And you got the young single lady who trying to be serious and trying to be deep and really want to do what God want her to do. But every day she wake up and realize that all my friends got boyfriends, they get married, and I'm lonely. And it don't seem like I got any prospects on the horizon. He says, I don't see none of them out there. Every man that try to come holler at me is a fool. Oh, he's just crazy. Oh, he just slick, no-down joker who already got two wives and four baby mamas. It just ain't good. Now, if the story goes like Eve's story, the deception begins when the thoughts begin to creep in. Has God said? And what the has God said that happened to this young lady is did God truly say that I can only enjoy the pleasure or the fellowship of the opposite sex in the confines of marriage? It's like, is is it really that deep? I mean, what's wrong with having a friend? What's wrong with, I'm saying, having somebody just to talk to? Like, God don't want me to be unhappy. And it brings happiness to me. If I have, well, y'all don't talk no more. If I have somebody just to give me some text messages in the morning to wake me up. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the thoughts, they begin to go. And those thoughts creep into doubt because now you started doubting and questioning what's wrong with me. Like, God, is he giving up on me? God just don't want everybody else to be happy, but he don't want me to be happy. God got plans for everybody. He got to make for them and to make for them, maybe I'm just going to be by myself. Maybe it's just for me not to have anybody ever and I'm going to be by myself for the rest of my life. Then you get schizophrenic. But I don't want to be by myself for the rest of my life. <laughs> like, but maybe I can be like Paul. I don't want to be like Paul. Paul, you got to travel around here. Nobody. Man, God, least, that's the old, that play. People ain't trying to live like that no more. Everybody got somebody. And I know the Lord want me to be happy. So what do you begin to do? You begin to evaluate and perceive things outside of the realm of God's Lordship and His control. So now every man you see that halfway got a muscle, you be like, Is he the one? <laughs> okay. Alright. He got a job. Ramzan <laughs> brother, you look he do look nice. Oh, look that. he looked over here and smiled. See, that's a sign from God. <laughs> and you begin to run all these things in your head and you start to make plans on how this could fit what you believe in your heart to be the thing that God wants you to have. Then the brother exposes himself. And you realize, ain't nothing about this brother what the Bible supposed to have. He ain't righteous at all. Then you say, see, that's a sign. I'm a missionary evangelist and God want me to save him (laughs) and we ain't gonna have no regular relationship we're gonna meet together and do Bible study and and when I text him in the morning when he tells me hello beautiful I'm gonna send him the verse of the day (laughs) and you start to think in your mind and evaluate this situation and allow the desires and the dictates and your judgments to create what it is that is good, okay, and acceptable. And what this does is allow you to lower your guard. And it allows you to accept things that you otherwise would not have accepted. Because you begin this text relationship with this brother. And he texting you, okay, beautiful. And you sending him the verse of the day. Then he texting you at lunch. What you doing, beautiful? I ain't doing nothing but seeing that hit working. I'm bored. What you got up for tonight? None of what you got up for tonight? I'm just trying to see what you're doing. And now you're blushing. Now you're smiling. And now you're going home feeling good. And now you're conflicted. Because you got a little bit of Jesus in you. And it's telling you that what you're doing and what you're thinking is wrong. But you got a whole bunch of emotions and a whole bunch of deception in you. And it's telling you that it ain't that wrong. And there's a way for you to make it right and you begin to justify and rationalize why is it okay for him to come? Why is it okay for him to be here? Why is it okay for me to enter into this relationship even though everything in me telling me I should not do it? And the next thing you know, you wake up, you're crying, and you're feeling bad, and you're sorry, and you don't want to come to church no more because you think, Jay going to already know that I did this wrong, and he's just going to tell all my business I ain't going around them DNA folks no more. (laughs) Because you feel bad and you shame them, you have made decisions purely based off what you see and what you perceive within yourself and not allowing God to enter into the picture. Now, that's just a deep example. But we do these things all the time. To the point that the videos that we watch on our phones, the songs that we listen to, there are things that we know and we believe, I shouldn't be doing this. But then your mind begins to rationalize why it's okay. That's because we create life for ourselves apart from consulting God. And this is what happened to Eve and how she ended up in the place that she in, that she began to see the fruit apart from his creation from God. Now the amazing thing is, and it's going to lead to where we're going, Now, if you read in chapter 2, God made a whole bunch of trees. He made a lot of them. Whole bunch of trees he gave them. And God gave them access to every last one of them. She could have looked at any tree. She could have consulted anyone. She had multiple opportunities and multiple chances to eat a whole lot of trees. A whole lot of fruit from a whole lot of trees. But why this particular one did she focus on? It's because her attention was drawn to it by the deception that took forth. You, you get what I'm saying? The enemy in his plan to get her away from God drew her to the thing that God created but the thing that he drew her to was to utilize the thing that God made in a way that God did not intend it for to be used. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? she focused, the tree on evil. The tree wasn't bad. But her use and her desire for it was and it extends to all of us now. Just think about it. Most of the stuff that we desire to do that is wrong, the thing in and of itself is not wrong. It's not bad. Male and female relationships sticking with our same person. God made that. God has a plan for it. God designed it. He crafted it. It is a beautiful thing to be used the way that God created it to be used. But the problem comes in it when we see it and we pervert it and allow it to be defined apart from what it is that God has created. And it's the same thing that goes for us, our tongue, our body, all of our existence, music, everything we got. God has an intent. God has a purpose for it. But the culture corrupts it and it redefines it apart from God. And we live in this struggle where we're trying to absorb in all that the world has defined and see how we can use it apart from God's definition of it. That is part of the definition of sin, to pervert, to change. So as we evaluate life and as we evaluate culture, we cannot do it in a mindset that God has nothing to do with it. This is one of the great deceptions that happened in our education system, corrupting our children. And that's this idea of neutrality. What you mean by that? We have been trained and brought up that there are some God things and there are some anti-God things and there are some middle neutral things that don't have nothing to do with either one of them. And education is one of those neutral things. God ain't got nothing to do with this. And what we're teaching I ain't anti-God. This is just bare facts. It's neutral. That's a lie. Because if God is who he says, everything that exists, exists under his ruleship and his authority. He defines it all. Nobody has the right to give definition to anything but the God that created it. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So everything we impact in life, everything we encounter in life, we must filter it through who God is and what it is he made it for. So we can't use our lives, our bodies, our tongues, music, any other thing that that exists in and of itself and thinking that this is just a concrete thing that God ain't got nothing to do with. God has something to do with everything because God has crafted and created everything so that the way that we live our lives and the way that we use our lives and things that we allow ourselves to be a part of, we need to filter it through the filter that God exists and he gives definition to. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? So as you begin to make connections and you enter into relationships, you allow God to define the purpose and the extent of it. Don't be like Eve. Who allowed her gaze to be turned away from God. And to look solely upon this thing. Now I'll show you another parallel. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Y'all got these electronic Bibles. So you can't hold your place. Because we're going to come back to that. 1 John chapter 2. Starting at verse. I think it's 5. I won't. Alright 5. 15. First John chapter two, verse 15. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. This is very deep little scripture here. Read it one more time. It said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, this is John talking about this love, not the world. And he begins to paint a picture of what he means about love, not the world. And he said the all that is in the world, or the consummation of the world that he's referring to us not to love, is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's saying that all this is all in the world. And the point is, if you love these things, the love of God is not in you. Say that one more time. If you love these things, the love of God is not in you. So for y'all deep church folks who didn't have people to train you that there's a such thing as a worldly Christian, they lie. There is no worldly Christian. There is no Christian who categorize or who is in love with the world. It's not one. To love the world is to be an enemy of God, as James said. And John said that the love of the world shows that the love of God is not in you. And he characterized the world. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Now we flash back to Genesis chapter 3. Go back. I told you y'all need your paper See, so you Just flip back. Y'all got to match all them buttons. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. Still at verse 6. And show you the parallel. And how this has been around since the beginning. Like I told you. The Genesis is the origins of all that we understand from the rest of the Bible. Said when the woman saw the tree was good for food. So the woman looking at the tree, she saw that it was good for food. It was something beneficial for the what? Body. So the desire to eat, lust of the flesh, is what she initially began with. She saw that it was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. So it looked good, it's good for the food, and was the last one. And the tree was desired to make one wise, the pride of life. So all of these things that John talked about, that's all that's in the world, began right here in Genesis chapter 3. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. She saw that it was good for food. It was something in her body that could benefit from the thing that was there. Her body wanted something, and the tree could supply that need. It looked good. I don't know if it was sparkling. I don't know. I don't think that people put all that little wax on your food to make it shine in Walmart. I don't know if God had some of that on, on the little thing to make it a little shiny. You know, they had a little mist, especially when you go to the expensive grocery store. They had a little mist shooting up in there to make it always look fresh. You ain't got that in Calhoun food while you go down that thing. <laughs> they ain't got no mist. They got that funk up in that thing. <laughs> That's all. But she was looking at it, and it looked good. It it appealed to our eyes. It appealed to our perception. It said it was a tree desired to make one wise. All that is in the world was right here in this tree. And the caution for us is to not allow ourselves to make decisions based off these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So when you're evaluating yourself, and when you're in a moment of decision, if your whole purpose or reason can tie back to one of these things, you need to pump the brakes a little bit. It's the only reason you enter into that relationship with our theoretical little lady is because my body wants something. That biology is, is, is burning within me and there's some chemistry taking place that producing some feelings and some thoughts and the desires in me and I need these satisfied. If that's the only reason you have, you ain't got no reason. What you're showing is that you have been drawn in into this world system, the thing that God told us not to love. And if you get deep and say, well, no, it's deeper than that. Just look at him. Look at the biceps on that thing. That goes to the what? Lust of the eyes. It look good. And if the whole basis of your relationship built on the fact that he's fine, you making a wrong decision. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Lust of the flesh, I want it. Lust of the eyes, he finds. The pride of life. This marriage, this union brings some fulfillment to me. You're wrong. And the amazing thing is this last one has been so elevated to the point in our day and culture we don't recognize it. We don't see that we are driven by the pride of life. To the places that we desire to stay, the clothes that we wear, everything that we do is dictated or shaped by the perception of other people and the way that it puts me on in my societal status. That's how we make decisions. You, you, you see anything different? How old are you? You, yes. You're a 16, beautiful age, 16. So that mean you in what? 10th or 11th? 11th grade. Grand time. You got a lot of friends? You guess? You don't know. She has a lot of friends? Okay. You got a lot of friends. So 16 with a whole lot of friends. 11th grade. So this is almost freedom time in your life. You start to feel the itch. Then get to shaking. And your whole way you view people's opinions and, and, and their decisions and their input in your life again, to change. And you got a whole lot of friends. Now, how many of your friends refuse to do certain things because somebody else said it ain't cool? Answer that just question in your mind. Don't say it out loud. Just think about it. How, how many of them refuse to do certain things just because other people will not like it? It's a good little bit, ain't it? And it's some who have secret things in their lives that they enjoy, but they keep it a secret because it ain't cool. And not only because it ain't cool, some of them, they ain't sure if it's cool or not. Just just watch. You can see it even in church. That there are times where God's begin to speak to you, and you want to do certain things, and you hear it, and the first thing you do once you could get convicted about someone you want to do something is look around, and you assess the social acceptability of the action that I'm about to take. That's why most evangelists they cheat because they know this aspect about people. Just like when they get their altar call, and the final thing they won't tell everybody to come up. A lot of them cheat. man, y'all don't know this. This is backdoor tricks when you go to your big evangelistic meeting that he had down and, and his whole bunch of people. What a lot of evangelists do to make people make a decision is they put altar workers scattered throughout the crowd. They just scatter them everywhere. They put some way up in the balcony. They put them all out through. So when the man get up there and say, anybody want to accept Jesus, or would you come, those people stand up and start walking. So them people who are on the fence be like, man, I believe I need to be saved. I know I don't feel like walking in front of them people they look up and you see 20 30 people get up and start coming now that makes it more acceptable for you to get up and start coming churches shouldn't do that that's that's, that's not good <laughs> but they do and the reason they do that is because they know that most people are dictated by this pride of life we don't want to be isolated We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be cast down. We don't want to be the only one that's whatever. And it's this drive to be socially acceptable that allow us to make decisions that are contrary to the word of God because we evaluate our decisions purely based off these motives. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if you're living this way, the testimony of the scripture is that you are not a lover of God. Because you cannot be a lover of God and a lover of this world at the same time. What you have to do is fix your gaze upon Jesus and allow Him to be the one that directs you. Allow Him to be the one that gives definition to your life, definition to your your choices, and definition to all the things around you. And now the amazing thing is that if you read the rest of it, it says a tree to desire to be made one wise. And we've been talking about the other weeks that Adam. E was created what in the image of God. They was crafted and made to be like God. And what she longed for, God had already supplied. What she desired, God created in her. But she sought it in something, in a way, in a means that God did not authorize. And that's what we do. Because we allow this world to give us our acceptance. We allow this world to give us our definition, our identity. But God already gave it to you. You are loved. You are beloved. You are accepted because you are made in the image of God. You have hope. You have grand destiny because you are made in the image of God. So stop seeking for the world to validate what it is that God has already given you. Know and understand that God made you. God has given you destiny. God loves you and his love is greater than anything that you can gain or seek upon this planet. So stop looking for what God has given already in places that God has not authorized you to give it. Because we go to certain things with joy. God said my joy I place within you. The world ain't give it. The world can't take it away. But So why I got to get drunk to feel good. I don't need it. Because the thing that the drunk man is trying to get, I already got. Are you understanding what I'm saying? I don't need to smoke a joint to cool my nerves and to cope with life. Because I'm more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. I have overcome this world. And there's nothing in this world that can overtake me or overwhelm me. All I got to do is lift up my voice to cast my cares upon him because he cares for me. And if ever anxiety attempts to creep in, I can... Make my request known to God and the peace of God will flood my heart. I don't don't need a joint. You understanding what I'm saying? But we wrestle with these things is because we allow the world to define these things for us. You, 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 You get my picture. So everything that people seek for, everything that people long for in things outside of God that I got to wrestle with and define, should I do that? Can I do that? Is it okay for me to do that? Can Christians... I don't have to have them questions. Because the only question I need to know is am I loving God by doing this? And or am I trying to satisfy something inside of me that God has already given me anyway? I don't need it. I already got it. Y'all understanding what I'm saying? So please... As we begin to understand self, know that you cannot define self apart from God. You cannot. You can't look to this world, you can't look within yourself because you are not the ruler of you. And if you find define yourself by yourself, you are rejecting God. And that would kill a whole lot of the questions that we have. Just like our theoretical little lady. Do I need this relationship? If she's trying to look within herself, look on her perception, and look into the pride of life, she's going to get the wrong answer. But if she allow God to give the reason and the purpose and the definition for these things, that's the only way to get the right answer. And that's the only way to keep yourself from entering into a relationship that God don't want you to have. Whether it's homo or hetero, it's the same thing. It's an attempt to redefine what God has made we don't get to make up them definitions are y'all understanding what i'm saying so when i fight for the sanctity of marriage you know, that's deep in our culture Y'all know y'all saying conservative christian people so y'all like that type of stuff you know i'm saying and that fight for marriage and all that stuff and we'll get down with all that i'm saying that that, that homo stuff and then in the lgbtq and all that other stuff we don't get down with that that's what y'all say but that is a corruption, just like the little lady out there tipping and dipping with all these different boyfriends. It's the same thing. So mama, just like you would kick your son out your house if he brought another man in your house. You should not be allowing boyfriends to come stay over your house. Come on, we studying. In there with the door closed. Trying to learn biology. It's the same thing. His sin, her sin is the same sin as the corruption of the thing that God has created. So the same outrage you would get to see your little boy laid up on the bed with another little boy, you should get that same outrage when you're strolling through your daughter's phone and you see her booed up and all that little stuff on some little dude. Because God ain't make them to be like that. Both of them. You understanding what I'm saying? But the amazing thing is, is that we have accepted so much of the world's definition... And we allow them to dictate and to control how it is that we view and perceive and express our Christianity that we don't realize any longer that a friend of the world is an enemy of God. So we allow worldliness to be within our children. We allow worldliness to be displayed by our children. But we don't get outraged by it. And to it progress to the point that the world is outraged by it. Y'all understand what I'm saying? And in, in, in our conservative Christian people, we go mad because... Another man that shot up a whole nother mall. Another man that shot up what it is, a, a concert. All these mass shootings and we go crazy and we get insane and we be outraged because God did not intend us to murder. God did not intend us to kill. But when we see the news, we say, oh man, just the mother black folks up there shooting each other in Chicago. We don't, we don't call that mass shooting. Twelve children died. Man, them, them gangsters and them thugs up there, they need to quit. It's a mass shooting too and we should be outraged by that as well we should be fueled with the same passion and we should be crying and crying out just like we do when we see the little news and they show up that thing over and over and over and over again when we hear that down the street in gill village it was a mass shooting and a 12 year old kid was shot a 16 year old got killed in front of their mother we should be mad about that just like we mad about eric garner you understand what i'm saying but we don't have the same response it's because we're not fueled by what it is that God has created we're fueled by the social movings of our society we allow the world to define for us what it is we should be mad about you understand what I'm saying so when Mike Brown got shot we watch CNN all day and we need to do something and I'm getting tired of this Them treating us like this. And them going against us like that. And and it's crazy. But when Jericho got shot, it don't even respond. Why? Because Jederico got chased down in a neighborhood that we don't like by a person that we don't like and in a result that we not even conscious of. So it don't get the same attention. That when we see the mamas from Sandy Hook weeping and crying on the TV for their children, we weep and we cry with them. But when we see the mamas from Gill Village weeping and crying over their children, them crazy out there. They need that. that, that. See, that why I don't go out there. We don't weep and cry with them just like we do with the others. It's because we don't allow God to shape our view and our perceptions of life. We perceive life apart from God. And we cannot be those type of people. The enemy of, the, of God is the lover of the world. And a lover of the world is a person who allows the world to dictate what it is they can and cannot do. What it is they love, what it is they pursue. But we need to be people who get our definition, who get our identity, who get our understanding of ourselves right there with God. He defined life for us. And the transition and drive us home and continuing in that same vein. After Eve Allowed herself to be sucked in, doubt the word of God, doubt the character of God, and to begin to evaluate life on herself. That's when sin entered in. And she did the thing that God did not want her to do. And the immediate response of sin entering into the world was she lost consciousness completely of God. Now, why do you say that? Because once the presence of God entered in, they heard the voice of God walking in the garden. And they ran and they hid themselves. Heard God walking and they ran and they hid themselves. Which means that they their minds were so changed by the sin that they no longer understood God correctly. Why do you say that? It's because if they knew who God was, they would have known one thing. You can't hide from him. But the fact that they thought that they can hide and the fact that they thought that they could escape shows you that their minds have been altered by this thing. The good theologians call it the noetic effect of sin. What that means is that how sin affects our minds. In the first place, it affects our minds. as It, it, it distorts or transforms our understanding of who God is. And I'm going to just give me an example. I've been picking on this little girl for too long. Let's just take this, this young man, young lad. 18 years old. Give him age this time. Not just a young man. He's 18 year old man. I don't want to pick on the old man. Living in this great modern society. And he go to church. And if you ask him straight out, he will tell you he was a Christian. But he keep his phone locked and close to him. When he enters into his bedroom, he locks the door. Mama don't have no right to walk up in there without getting his permission. So I don't operate like that. Why is it that he does that? It's because somebody sent him a video that has transformed his whole perception. And now he see little things he ain't supposed to be seeing, but he delights in them he enters into this secret place to do the things that he know he should not be doing but completely unconscious of the fact that there is no secret thing so while he's sitting strolling and think that he's doing something ain't nobody seeing it not conscious of the fact that every scroll he makes every video he watch every single day God is conscious of it more than conscious of it God is there with you but you're not conscious of God because your mind has been transformed by sin and you can take this same kid and he will tell you God is everywhere because that's what they taught him at church and he will tell you God sees everything and he will tell you if he deep that he believed that God is omnipresent but he still sneaks off and do the things that he know God don't want him to do because he's not conscious of him And this is a part of the effect of sin, that we think that we can hide from God, that we think God is not aware of what's going on deep inside of us. God knows. He sees you, young man. He sees you, old man. He sees you, preacher and pastor, that is sitting there hiding from your wife the fact that you're watching other women and you get more delight from them than you do from her. God knows it. And there is no secret thing. Jesus made the fact that the light has entered the world but men run from the light because their deeds are dark and they hate the light. And it shows you that escape that goes on that we think that we can run from God and it manifests itself in our own heart when that sin enters into us because one of the first things we refuse to do once we're convicted of sin and we're conscious of it is to go to God. The minute sin overwhelms us and we get convicted we come up with every reason why we shouldn't pray we come up with every reason why we shouldn't go to church we come up with every reason to do everything but run to god it's because we think that somehow we can escape the judgment of god in this thing or we think that somehow god is not involved in this whole situation but understand and know that god is already there And if Adam and Eve would have been the people that God created, their first response should have been to run to him. That we have been corrupted. Something ain't right in us. God, we need you to fix it. But instead, since they were overwhelmed by sin, they ran away from him. And we all have been there. We all have seen those moments in our lives where we messed up and we say, I can't pray right now. I can't go to God right now. That's sin. That's sin. That's the manifestation of sin being deep in your heart. Do not yield to that because that's a part of the destruction and the deception. Those times where you feel most unworthy to go to God. Those times where you feel most rejected by him. Those times where you feel that you have every excuse to stay away are the times that you need to run the most hard towards him. Because those are the times where you are being overwhelmed by sin. And you think that you can get it together. You think that you can straighten it up. You think that you can just give up or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Whatever the lie the enemy putting in your heart. And those thoughts, those escapes, all of those things lead us to, to suicide and lead us to depression. It lead us to all this type of isolation where we run away. Those are lies from the enemy and you are being overwhelmed by sin. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And so we need to go to Hebrews chapter 12 and we're in right there. Just to tie both of them together. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1. It said, wherefore, Hebrews 12 verse 1. Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us us lay aside every weight and every sin that in the sin which though easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is deep. And wherefore, now this is following on the, the back of Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great theologians, they call it the hall of faith. And they go through all these people who believed in God, who trusted in God, and the great things that they did because they trusted in God. And it said, wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with such great a cloud of witnesses. And I want to help transform your mind on this. That's the way that most people read this passage when they see it is you see that you got us in a stadium. And you got all of Daniel and Noah and Abraham and all them people up in the room. Go, Chelsea. Go, Chelsea. That ain't what he's saying. When he said we are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, what he's saying, if we are surrounded by testimonies. As you look and as you see, you see testimonies. These are people who testify. They give witness to the great fact that if you believe in God, God could do great things to you. That's what we're surrounded by. That's what you got. So when you look into your heart and you see your life and you see your struggles, there's someone you can point to to say that he had the same struggle, she had the same struggle, that this person believed in God and overcame this. This person trusted God and was able to do this. God used this person. God used the Rahab. God used all these different type of people, and I'm one of these same type of people. So I got testimony that God can use me. Therefore, seeing that we are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, since we got so many testimonies from God, he said, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. How do we run it? Looking unto Jesus. That's what we have to do. Lay aside the sin that so easily besets you. Get rid of the weights of this world. And, and I always love that. Look like, How you say that? In verse 1, it said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that those easily beset us. And the deep thing is, he just say, lay it aside. He's like, I've been struggling with this for 30 years. Lay it aside. That all my family and all my folks will just like this. Lay it aside. There's nothing too strong that you cannot overcome. There's nothing so great that it will overwhelm you to the point that you cannot supersede it. All you can do is lay it aside. Paul makes it seem so simple. I well, don't know if this is Paul is Hebrew. The Hebrew writer makes it seem so simple. Just lay it aside. Whatever the struggle is lay it aside and how you do it looking unto jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith so we move because our default position is to turn away from god our default position is to not consult god to not be conscious of god we don't think about god too often so the way that we fix the way that we lay aside the way that we keep ourselves from being deceived is by looking unto jesus so we turn and fix our gaze upon jesus who is the author and finisher of our faith? We set our mind on him. Matthew chapter 14. You don't got to turn there. But there's the story of Jesus telling his disciples to go across the river. Or the sea, rather. And they get caught in the middle of the storm. And in the middle of the storm, Jesus come walking on the water. Alright? Once they recognize that it was Jesus, one of the disciples being Peter, turned to Jesus and asked him, Lord, if it's really you, bid me to come. And Jesus says the amazing thing is come. So Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. Amazing. Peter did the same thing Jesus did. But the story turns that as he began to look at the waves and see how strong the wind were, he began to sink. And Jesus lifted him up and scolded them for their little faith I'm like man dude just walked on water and you tell me he ain't got no faith but the amazing thing in that story is he was able to do what God had bid him to do as long as he kept his eyes on God told him if you tell me to come I can come Jesus said come and he stepped out focused on Jesus But he didn't sink until he turned his eyes away from him. And he started to watch the surroundings. He started to look at every excuse why he shouldn't be doing what he was doing. It's a storm out here. This is water. These are waves. I'm about to die. And that's when he began to sink. So that teaches me something. is that my ability to be and to do what God created me to be and do is dependent upon my ability to focus on him. So when that doubt creep into you that you are overwhelmed, you can't do nothing in life. What do you do? Turn your eyes. You look at Jesus. Because if focusing on Jesus allowed Peter to walk on water, I think it allows you to overcome a little heaviness and a little depression. I think it can help you be the mom that you want to be. I think it can help you be the father and the husband that God desires you to be. All you have to do is look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He's the one that started. He's the one that's going to bring it to completion. Everything is dependent on him. So instead of looking at this world, the systems of this world, instead of looking at ourselves and our inabilities, our shortcomings, we look at Jesus. And as long as we're looking at Jesus, we shall overcome. Isaiah 26 says in this song, it says that he will keep them in perfect peace, who mine has stayed upon thee, all because they trust in the Lord. I get perfect, complete, entire, total peace. Why? Keep my mind on Jesus. And that his mind is stayed on him, I focus, I think about him. I'm conscious of him. In my day-to-day action, So let's keep God in our mind. And if we keep God in our mind. We keep ourselves from the wicked one. Because we resist God. I mean we resist the devil. Submit ourselves unto God. And he will flee from us. So a part of that resistance is the submitting. A part of that turning is looking to. You don't just repent for the sake of repenting. You turn from yourself and you turn to God. And if you turn to God. God gives you a promise. That he will complete the thing. That he began in you. That he will keep you into the day of Christ Jesus. And he will present you before the father. Holy and blameless. Without spot or wrinkle. All we have to do is trust him. Anybody got any questions? What does the word cautious mean? Cautious. To be cautious is to do something carefully. Conscious of the danger that is around it. So you take your time and you're aware of the danger that's involved in it. What does the word "aware" mean? Aware means you 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 recognize it. You know it. You you think about it. It ain't something in the back of your mind. Like when you're running outside, sometimes you can just straight catch out and you know it's glass on the ground, so you don't run that way because you're aware of the fact that glass on the ground. But if you don't know that glass on there, you just run out there. You just running. You're not aware of it. You're not thinking about it. And then you cut your foot up. And your mama fuss at you and slap you across the back of the head. Say you should've been out there with no shoes on anyway. <laughs> Any other questions? When Eve gave Adam the fruit from the tree, did he know it was a fruit from the tree when he first ate it? From the way the story is wrapped, wrapped, yeah, it seems like he was conscious of the fact. Because once God came to him, he began immediately to to to, to, to snitch. <laughs> Adam was the first niche. (laughs) 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 Any other questions? Got a half question over here. I know that um, we were talking earlier about basically being influenced by the world. but I was also thinking about just your upbringing Mm -hmm. that's outside of the influence of everybody else, but just how you were. Taught and, and raised, and how that can sometimes be contrary to what we read about. That yeah. can facilitate that pride of, of life, yeah. and uh, yeah, that that, that is a, that, that's a big one. I absolutely agree on both sides. Some of us raised well in, in rich places that create that pride of life, and some of us raised with nothing. Want to be in rich places where created that out of life. So, yes, that is a big influence. But you have to be conscious of that in, in every round. Because uh, when I be out on the street sometimes, a lot of people like to throw that. Like, man, you're a Christian because you live in America and your parents were a Christian. And I generally ask the question, do you do everything your parents raised you to do? And the immediate response is no. All right. So if you can accept some and reject some, and make your own decisions about certain stuff. Why do you think I didn't do this about my belief in Christianity? And they have no questions for that. Because it's a cop-out when it comes to religious stuff that we just brought up this way. But when we be honest with ourselves, some things we reject. And <clears throat> those unconscious influences are one of those things we have to be aware of. Because that stuff, it, it runs deep, like I said, to the way we spend money, to the things that we desire, even to the way we treat people. Because unconsciously we pick up some stuff. Especially us who were raised by people who grew up in the deep south. We have some unconscious, unbiased. And I know we black, so we don't supposed to be be able to be racist, but that's a lie. (laughs) We do too. (laughs) But and it's a lot of it is unconscious. Like I said, when you go to the stove, well the audio said, Man, we're going to that that Habib store. Not even realize that you're being disrespectful. See, you weren't raised like that. (laughs) Uh, See, I was. uh, this is part of my society and upbringing. I had to realize that as I got older, like, hold up, <laughs> I shouldn't be saying that. But go ahead. We got another question. So when you're talking about the, like, the evolution, so are scientists kind of, like, based off of the evolution? Are scientists based off evolution? Some sciences are. So you got a couple category of sciences. There are some who believe and teach evolution. But there are some scientists who believe and teach what we call creation. So not all science is based off evolution. But the hard part for us is that we have surrendered our education to our enemies, as Malcolm X warned us against. So we only get the evolution side of it. So all they're going to teach you in school is going to be evolution. And if you pay attention to it, everything from that is explained based off that being true. Even when you go to history class, they explain history based off evolution being true. And if you get old and you go to college and you get deep and you study psychology and so on and so forth, all of those things are filtered through the fact that evolution is true. So they use that as a groundwork to try to explain everything. But that's not scientific truth because ain't no true science to prove that it is true. So if you can risk getting in trouble with your mama When you get into deep class, you can ask your teacher to give you proof of evolution, and she won't be able to give you none. (laughs) But you got to have that talk with your mama (laughs) first. Any other questions? That's it? All right, they're all yours.